Arms for a leper. Arms for a leper. Arms for an ex-leper. Arms for a podcaster. If you like this show, please go to sovcast.tumblr.com. That's S-O-V-C-A-S-T dot tumblr dot com. And look for the donate button. It's right there at the top. I'll, I'll just wait here while you go do that, okay? Hello? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeff. Sorry the show is so late this week, but with the recent tragedies, I really struggled on how to structure the show this time. I thought about doing a somber facts-only show with no humor and no non-serious news segments, but that's just not me. I'm not going to change who I am because some assholes decide to kill people. And besides, people like that want to make everyone else as miserable as they are. Now is when we need laughter and wonder the most. It's that first laugh, smile, or wonder at the world that can kindle a spark of new hope. I usually ease you into the crappy news by first doing some good news, and then ease you out by telling you something cool, and then end with something funny. It's like I give you a thumbs up before kicking you in the teeth, and then saying I'm sorry by taking you out for pizza and beer. But this time the kick comes first, so we can condense all the funny and cool at the end to counteract some pretty shitty news. So let's get to it. Terror attacks rock France, Tunisia, Kuwait, and Syria. Four terrorist attacks in France, Tunisia, Kuwait, and Syria killed more than 190 people and left many more injured in a series of assaults that appear to be linked with Islamic radicals. In Tunisia, authorities reported that as many as 28 people had been killed when gunmen attacked two tourist hotels in the resort town of Sos. In Kuwait, a suicide bomber attacked a Shiite mosque during Friday's prayers, killing at least 25 people. Militants from the Islamic State have claimed credit for the attack. In France, a man carrying the black flag of the Islamic State took part in an attack on an American-owned gas canister factory in the southeast of the country. In a particularly grisly note, a decapitated head covered with Arabic script was spiked on the factory's fence. The man's body was found several meters away. A source close to the investigation said the victim was the boss of the suspect, a delivery man. The two had gone to the company to make a delivery, but the assailant killed and beheaded his 50-year-old manager. The attacker was arrested after he drove his vehicle into some gas canisters, which exploded, injuring the attacker. ISIS militants kill more than 140 civilians in the Syrian town of Kobani Thursday, in what activists are calling the group's second biggest massacre since declaring the establishment of an Islamic caliphate across parts of Iraq and Syria a year ago. Civilians in the contested border town between Syria and Turkey, otherwise known as Ain al-Arab, as well as the nearby village of Brakh Botan, were attacked by ISIS members wearing the uniforms of the Kurdish People's Protection Units, or YPG. According to the UK-based Syrian Observer for Human Rights, more than 200 people were also wounded. Elderly people, women, and children are among the dead, according to the observatory. And our next story... If the TTP passes, banks will wield As more and more people begin figuring out that the banking system is all a bunch of smoke and mirrors, and public interest in public banking grows, the big banks have come up with a diabolical plan to combat the public's dawning understanding of the sheer scope of the global banking system's corruption. 
and that could help explain the desperate rush to fast-track not only the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment par Partnership, but the Trade in Service Agreement, or TISA. The TISA would nip attempts to implement public banking and other monetary reforms in the bud. You see, money is really just an IOU. The role of the central bank is to preside over a legal order that effectively grants banks the exclusive right to create IOUs of a certain kind, ones that the government will recognize as legal tender by its willingness to accept them as payment of taxes. There's really no limit on how much banks could create, provided they can find someone willing to borrow it. Just consider what might happen if mortgage holders realize the money that the bank lent them is not really someone's life savings, but something the bank just whisked into existence through its possession of a magic wand which we, the public, handed over to it. So if money's just an IOU, why are we delivering the exclusive power to create it to an unelected, unaccountable, non-transparent private banking monopoly? Why are we buying into the notion that the government is broke? that it must sell off public assets and slash public services in order to pay off its debts. The government could pay its debts in the same way private banks pay them, simply with accounting entries on its books. What will happen when a critical mass of the populace realizes that we've been vassals to a parasitic banking system based on a fraud? That we the people could be creating money as credit ourselves through publicly owned banks that return the profits to the people? Henry Ford predicted that the monetary revolution would come, and that there might even be a move to nationalize the whole banking system and turn it into a public utility. It's not hard to predict that the international bankers and relative big-moneyed interests anticipating this move would counter with legislation that locked the current system in place, so that there was no way to return money and banking to the service of the people, even if the current private model ended in disaster, as many pundits predict it will. And that is precisely the effects of the Trade and Service Agreement, or TISA, which was slipped into the fast-track legislation now before Congress. On June 3, 2015, WikiLeaks released 17 key documents related to the TISA, which is considered perhaps the most important of the three deals being negotiated for fast-track trade authority. The documents were supposed to remain classified for five years after being signed displaying a level of secrecy that outstrips even the TPP's four-year classification. The TISA involves 51 countries, including every advanced economy except for BRICS, or Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The deal would massively unregulate global trade in services covering close to 80% of the U.S. economy, including financial services, health care, education, engineering, telecommunications, and many more. It would restrict how governments can manage their public laws, and it could dismantle and privatize state-owned enterprises, turning those services over to the private sector. The TISA's standstill clause would effectively ban any moves from a market-based to a state-based provision of public services. This clause would prohibit the creation of public monopolies in sectors that are currently open to private sector companies. Similarly, the Ratchet Clause would automatically lock in any future actions taken to deregulate services in a given country. If the government did decide to privatize a public service, that government would be unable to return to a public model at a later date. That means we can forget about turning banking and credit services into public utilities. TISA is a one-way street. 
Industries once privatized remain privatized, and furthermore, it would mean that the next time a too-big-to-fail bank fails and needs to be bailed out again, it would make it illegal to make them pay the bailout money back because it would be putting now-privatized money into the public sector. If you like this show, please go to facebook.com slash sovcast, sovcast.tumblr.com, or twitter.com slash seeker, the letter O, Veritas. Charleston and the Many Fold Problem Let me just start by saying that no matter what you may have heard, the shooting in Charleston was racially motivated. Dylan Roof's manifesto stated as much, his online photo presence was full of white supremacist symbolism, the front of his car had a Confederate States of America license plate, there are pictures of him surrounded by Confederate battle flags, pictures of him standing on and burning the American flag, in one picture he is shown wearing a jacket with the flags of apartheid South Africa and Rhodesia, Dylan Roof stated during the shooting that he was there to kill black people. And in the midst of shooting black people said, you rape our women and you're taking over our country. He killed nine black people because they were black people. Well, last night's deadly attack taking place at a historic church in South Carolina. The gunman's horrifying attack on faith, killing nine people, including a famed pastor. So if we're not safe in our own churches, then where are we safe? Joining us right now is senior pastor of Hope Christian Church, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Your thoughts this morning? Well, first of all, I'm pastor of the Call Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had a prayer vigil this morning at 6 a.m., praying for the people in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we're urging people, wait for the facts, don't jump to conclusions. But I have to tell you, I am deeply concerned that this gunman chose to go into a church because there does seem to be a rising hostility against Christians across this country mm -hmm. because of our biblical views. Wait, what was that? Uh, we're urging people, wait for the facts, don't jump to conclusions. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It was a jump to conclusions. That's what I thought you said. Let's be clear. If Dylan Roof had wanted to attack Christians, he could have gone to his own church, St. Paul's Lutheran. But he didn't. He conducted his shooting at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest African Methodist Episcopal Church in the southern United States, and houses the oldest black congregation south of Baltimore. The church was founded in 1816, and in 1822, Denmark Vesey, one of the church's founders, was implicated in an alleged slave revolt plot, and the church has been highly active in the civil rights movement ever since. So enough about the whole attack on Christianity bullshit. So you believe that this whole episode, uh, the shooting, uh, was motivated more by, uh, more by the fact that it was a church and there were Christians in there uh, than by uh, the race of, of those people who were in there? Well, it's a question you have to ask because here you had an individual who could have focused on any number of targets that involve black folks in South Carolina. There's not exactly a dearth of black people in the state, uh, nor of symbols of, of things that are associated with the black past and the black heritage. 
uh, to single out the church, which is the institution that exemplifies the very faith that leads many black folks, for instance, to line up against the destruction of traditional marriage, which Obama and others are now pushing for, that will put them in a position of choosing between God and man, and many will resist, many will stand with God. I think that an act which tends to intimidate them, make them feel afraid of standing forward in their faith, I think we ought to be scratching our heads and wondering whether there is an evil at work that's more directed at God and Christianity than it is in existence so that politicians can play games with race. Have you ever noticed that some of the most vehement haters of the LGBTQ community end up being closeted themselves? Well, it's a question you have to ask. I am not gay. I never have been gay. Have you ever noticed that there only seems to be a lot of black people on Fox News after something horrible happens to black people or if they want to say something horrible about black people. Well, it's a question you have to ask. Oh, and just in case you didn't know, Dylan Roof has been apprehended. So why do these mass shootings keep happening? There is no one reason, just like there is no one solution to this problem. I've been doing a little research and I've noticed that one of the things the vast majority of the most violent countries in the world have in common is easy access to firearms. And like it or not, the easiest way to lower gun deaths is to lower access to firearms. I can hear you bitching already about how only the criminals will have guns. Is that the kind of society you want to live in where the average person is defenseless? While there would be a short phase where this is true, the danger could be abated by increasing the number of on-foot officers in high-crime areas. These cops wouldn't be there to stop petty crimes, they would be there to act as a deterrent to violent crimes. And since firearms are seized by law enforcement every day, the number of black market firearms available to small-time criminals and mentally ill people would dwindle pretty quickly. So after a while, it would primarily be organized crime that would have access to the black market firearms, and they primarily massacre each other instead of churchfuls, theaterfuls, or schoolfuls of innocent civilians. Oh, I hear you once again. But you can still kill somebody with a knife, a hammer, or an olive fork. First, let me say, dude, olive fork? That's messed up. Secondly, don't try to bullshit me. When it comes to killing people, there's a reason you want your gun. Because it's by far the easiest way for the average person to kill another person. I think the NRA would even agree with that. But even so, a new study, Firearm Justifiable Homicides and Non-Fatal Self-Defense Gun Use, shows that private citizens are far more likely to use guns to harm others or themselves than to use them to kill in self-defense. The study finds that in 2012, the most recent year for which data is available, there were only 259 justifiable homicides involving a private citizen using a firearm and that 13 states reported zero justifiable firearm homicides that year. The same year, there were 8,342 criminal firearm homicides. In fact, in a nation of more than 300 million firearms, it is striking how rarely guns are used in self-defense. The study found that victims of violent crimes were only able to draw their guns 0.8% of the time. The study also found that victims of property crimes only used their guns 0.1% of the time. In fact, a gun is far more likely to be stolen than used in self-defense. 
In addition to the thousands of annual murders, roughly 22,000 people die accidentally from a gun or use one to commit suicide. One thing I've realized in my 30 plus years martial arts experience is that without considerable training and practice, and even then it's impossible to cover all the variables, when it comes to firearms, the criminal, nine times out of ten, has the upper hand, because it's the criminal that typically chooses the time and place for the confrontation to occur. They are armed, they are ready, as were you, even if armed, are typically not ready. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, for he that strikes the first blow, if he strikes it hard enough, may need to strike no more. Words written by a man who'd fought in one of the bloodiest battles of World War I. Now all that being said, is banning guns the answer for the American gun problem? Probably not. We have too many people who would go apeshit because they believe that simply owning a gun makes them nigh invincible, and that the bigger, better, more dangerous gun you own turns you magically into a special forces operator. As you can probably tell, I don't think civilians should own assault rifles. Do you really want your neighbor to have a weapon that could shoot, even by accident, through steel plate armor, cinder blocks, or your entire house like it wasn't even there? I think the more practical solution would be that every firing range have an assortment of full-auto assault rifles and submachine guns that you can rent and shoot, because let's be honest, it looks like a blast. Pun intended. I would also make a couple of new handgun laws. All handgun sales or gifts must be done at a licensed dealer. Anyone taking ownership of a handgun must or must have undergone government-subsidized safe handling, cleaning, and firing instructions. And lastly, anyone taking ownership of a handgun must undergo a confidential, government-subsidized mental screening. Now, before any of you serious handgun enthusiasts freak out, answer me a few questions. Would you have really not purchased your handgun because of laws like these? If someone wouldn't go through the process, I propose, do you really think they're serious enough or mentally sound enough to own such an easily concealable and deadly weapon. On to another fold with a many-fold problem. The shame and cost of mental illness. We have a real problem with mental illness in this country, and that problem is shame. Both personal shame, what's wrong with me, why can't I just be normal, why can't I just force myself to be happy, why am I so sad and angry, why do I feel everything, and social shame. Why are you being such a pussy, such a flake? Why can't you just be normal? Just don't worry about things. There's nothing to be afraid of. Why do you take everything so personally? Medication and therapies for the weak. Just will yourself to be happy. Anyways, anyone with a mental illness has probably heard one or all those sentiments from yourself and or the people around you. And yes, if you do have a mental illness, it's okay to admit it to yourselves and the ones you love. It's usually the first step on the path of treatment. And that's the other problem. Treatment for mental illness, whether through therapy or through pharmacological methods, can be very expensive, so people tend to put it off. They try self-help methods and self-medicating, but for someone who genuinely needs help, these routes can be disastrous. Research has shown that people who live in countries with universal or single-payer health care systems seek help sooner and more often for their medical and or mental conditions. 
If more people were encouraged to seek help instead of being chastised and ostracized for having a mental illness, and if care was available to all without monetary concerns, America would literally be a happier place. Anti-otherism. Another thing the vast majority of the most violent countries in the world have in common is a long history of slavery, bigotry, racism, cultural and religious bias, and add on top of that the American belief in manifest destiny, and you've got one volatile concoction. This is the perfect concoction to nourish extremist ideologies and terrorism which can attract the mentally ill. Because, for the ostracized, angry, resentful, mentally ill person, nothing feels better and installs more loyalty than the acceptance of your peers. And last, but certainly not least, is poverty and inequality. Poverty and inequality dashes hope, destroys resolve, and for a small percent, forces action. Now, for a very small percent of that small percent, it can inspire to greatness, but, for the rest, it leads to crime. Usually small crime at first to supplement their minuscule wage, but eventually they get sent to finishing school, a.k.a. prison. When they get out of prison, the menial job with the minuscule wage no longer wants them. But they made a lot of new connections during their stint, so now it's full-time crime time. Most of the time, the consequences of their new professions only affect other poor people. But every once in a while, they run across someone in a different socioeconomic stratum. And since most of the time people from different socioeconomic levels don't mix, the image of the dangerous poor minority person gets imprinted on their minds, and therefore over time, encouraged by the media, they begin to see all minorities as dangerous. Now I can hear a few minority people saying, what about poor white people? They steal stuff. They grow weed or cook up some meth. Very true. But in order to have anti-otherism come into play, the criminal in question can't look like your cousin Cletus. Or actually be your cousin Cletus. Anti-otherism just doesn't work that way. So you may ask, why don't poor people just move someplace better? Let's try a little experiment. Set aside a hundred dollars. This is all the money you have to use for your move. Then try to find a place to live, but report no savings, income, or credit to potential places of residence. And further, it must be a city where you have neither friends nor relatives to rely on, and let's just see how far you get. That's not enough to convince you, let's try another experiment. Move to a place where it is blatantly obvious that you are different from the local populace, and see if they welcome you with open arms, or if you never quite feel accepted. Being different in any way, let alone an obvious to all way, can open one up to persecution. I'm curious how the experiment turns out, so message me at facebook.com slash sovcast, twitter.com slash seeker, the letter O, veritas, and sovcast.tumblr.com. Good luck with the whole manifest destiny thing. In closing, I'd just like you to keep in mind that a happy, well-adjusted person is the type of person least likely to commit a violent crime. So if we really want to keep our guns, then we need to treat the mentally ill and the social illnesses of poverty, social and economic inequality, and anti-otherisms in all their forms. Search iTunes for Sobcast. Subscribe, give a rating and a review, and keep an eye out for Super Gorilla. And now, out with the bad and in with the good with, wait, what? There's good news? And our first story. 
the South will not rise again. Walmart, Sears, Kmart, Amazon, eBay, and Etsy have stopped selling the Confederate battle flag, and the Valley Forge Flag Company, one of the nation's most prominent flag makers, announced it will stop making and selling Confederate flags. But what am I supposed to wipe my butt with on Memorial Day? Oh, and Flag Day. Can't forget Flag Day. That's, that's a real holiday, right? South Carolina is moving forward with its plans to remove the Confederate battle flag from its capital grounds, and a leading Mississippi official is ready to do the same. In Virginia, the state's Confederate license plate will soon be no more. The U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that Texas cannot be required to allow the Confederate flag on car license plates. Tennessee may soon do the same, but Georgia Republican Governor Nathan Deal has said he's not open to changing the state's Confederate plates. In our next story, Kansas considers good deed for PR reasons. Republican officials in Kansas have been working overtime lately to bolster the state's ruby-red reputation. On everything from economic policy, to undermining an independent judiciary, to cracking down on imaginary voter fraud, Kansas GOP-run state government has been a model of far-right government sociopathy. A recently approved state law capped ATM withdrawals with welfare debit cards at $25 per day, an unprecedented restriction. Not to mention, most ATMs only carry $20 bills, so how are you going to get $25 anyways? It also banned the cars from being used at a long list of establishments, including swimming pools. Governor Sam Brownback, Republican, signed the law in April, but now prompted by concerns that the cash withdrawal limit went too far and would jeopardize the state's compliance with federal rules, Kansas lawmakers are revising that provision. An amendment that cleared the Kansas State Legislature would give the state's Department for Children and Family Services leeway to loosen the limit or get rid of it altogether, if Governor Sam Brownback will sign it. The legislature placed a daily cap of $25 on cash withdrawals beginning July 1st, which will force beneficiaries to make more frequent trips to the ATM to withdraw money from the debit cards used to pay public assistance benefits. Since there is a fee for every withdrawal, the limit means that some families will get substantially less money and that the banks get a free handout from taxpayers. And our next story, Socialism. It's not just a dirty word anymore. Nearly half of Americans, 47%, say they would consider voting for a socialist for president if the person were well-qualified and nominated by the voters' party, according to a new Gallup poll survey. Democrats offer the most support for socialism, with 59% saying they would vote for a socialist candidate. Independents are split down the middle, and Republicans are the least supportive, with just 26% saying they'd vote for a socialist, mainly because they're not smart enough to realize what socialism actually is. Americans 18 to 29 are most open to the idea of socialism, with nearly 70% stating they would vote for one. Older generations are less inclined to do so. A Gallup study from April shows Americans have shifted their support towards socialist-type policies, with 52% of Americans now saying the government should redistribute wealth by placing higher taxes on the rich. The greatest support for wealth redistribution that's been measured since 1940. Of all the candidates who have entered the 2016 presidential race thus far, Senator Bernie Sanders, who is running on the Democratic nomination, is the only socialist. More specifically, a self-described democratic 
socialist. And our next story, love, is not only for straight people. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four on Friday that it is legal for all Americans, no matter their gender or sexual orientation, to marry the people they love. The decision is a historic victory for gay rights activists who have fought for years in the lower courts. 37 states and the District of Columbia already recognized marriage equality. The remaining 13 states banned these unions, even as public support has reached record levels nationwide. The justices found that, under the 14th Amendment, states must issue marriage license to same-sex couples and recognize same-sex unions that have already been legally performed in other states. Justice Anthony Kennedy delivered the majority opinion and was joined by Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan, Stephen Breyer, and Sonia Sotomayor. In the majority opinion, the justices outlined several reasons same-sex marriage should be allowed. They wrote that the right to marriage is an inherent aspect of individual autonomy, since decisions about marriage are among the most intimate that any individual can make. They also said gay Americans have the right to intimate association beyond merely freedom from laws that ban homosexuality. The justices wrote that extending the right to marry protects families. Without the recognition, stability, and predictability marriage offers, children suffer the stigma of knowing their families are somehow lesser. The majority concluded that the right for same-sex couples to marry is protected under the 14th Amendment, citing the clauses that guarantee equal protection and due process. And here's a random funny piece of audio I like to refer to as a palate cleanser. <laughs> but the, the movie really is amazing. My girls were completely engrossed by it when we were watching it, because <laughs> it, it really does make you feel like you're inside this 11-year-old girl. In a profoundly wholesome way. Now it's time for my science, history, and technology segment I call Cool Shit. This time I'll tell you about Techno Daredevil, how to build a straw house that will last for at least 14 centuries, and a little hair of the cat that bit you. Our first story, Techno Daredevil. Once again, I have a clip from the Culture Dig podcast. This time I tell Buchanan and Jimmers about technology that can turn the blind into Techno Daredevils. All right. This time in Cool shit, techno daredevil. Um, I was inspired by you know, watching the new uh, TV show Marvel's Daredevil, and uh, I kind of remembered. Kind of remembered in the back of my mind, it's like this cool technology that allows uh, blind people to see in a way. And uh, mm -hmm. I couldn't remember the name of it, but I was able to, you know, find it eventually and uh, see if it was still in use. And the answer is yes, it's still in use, and it's getting better and better. Uh, Hold on, you say still in use. Like, when did you hear this from? Because I feel like I heard reports, like, five years ago, eight years ago, about similar kind of technology. Eight, so this is something, like, you remembered from way back when. Like, eight, ten years ago, yeah. But the, in in, uh, yeah, in news okay, stories, right. they always, you know, it was in another news story here re recently, and they're like, a new technology, uh, ten years old. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, All right, I, I just keep going, Jeff, keep going. imagining something. Uh, I, well, I remember like new. 10 years ago thinking like, oh man, blind people are going to uh, be able to see any day now. It's Jordy the Ford. <laughs> it's like, it's new yeah. technology, uh, you know, tectonically speaking, geologically speaking. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Neuroscientist Dr. Paul Bakirita hypothesized in the 1960s that we see with our brains, not our eyes. 
Now, a new device uh, was developed in 1998, by the, by the way, trades on the, in on that thinking and aims to partially restore the experience of vision to blind people and visually impaired by relying on the nerves on the tongue surface to send light signals to the brain. The technology is called BrainPort, uh, the device being developed by uh, neuroscientists at Middleton, Wisconsin-based labs, WIC, WICAB, Incorporated. Um, visual data is collected through a small digital video camera, about 1.5 centimeters in diameter, that sits in the center of a pair of sunglasses worn by the users, and it's gotten much smaller and less noticeable over the years. Um, bypassing the eyes, the data is transmitted to a handheld or pocket-held based unit, which is a little larger than a cell phone. I actually thought it was a cell phone at first. This unit houses such features as zoom control light settings and shock intensity levels, as well as a central processing unit, which converts the digital signal into electrical impulses, replacing the function of the retina. So basically it shocks your tongue. <laughs> um, from the CPU, the signals are sent to the tongue via a lollipop, an electrode array, which about nine square centimeters that sits directly on the tongue. Each electrode corresponds to a set of pixels. White pixels yield a strong electrical pulse, whereas black pixels translate into no signals. Densely packed nerves at the tongue's surface receive the incoming electrical signals, which feel a little like pop rocks or champagne bubbles to the user. If anyone from WICAB is listening, I would recommend incorporating the lollipop into a retainer-like device so the users don't have to remove the lollipop in order to speak. That was a, a big problem. Uh, the video I watched showed this, this, guy, this blind guy rock climbing. But every time he wanted to talk, he'd have to let go with one hand and pull the lollipop out of his mouth and say something, then put it back, put it back in. So if it was just oh. like in a retainer at the at the roof of the mouth, he yeah. could press his tongue against the roof roof of his mouth to see, and then like he'd be able to talk, you know, without having to remove the shit from his mouth. <laughs> I see. It remains unclear whether the information is then transferred to the brain's visual cortex, where sight information is normally sent or to the somatosensory cortex where touch data from the tongue is interpreted. Um, I actually saw a new video which actually um, from a similar technology that shows brain scans. The signal goes first to the somatosensory, which is like touch cortex, and then travels back to the brain's visual cortex. So, so it hits both. So that's so they kind of they are seeing basically yes like in, in the sense that we think of seeing for people who aren't and and the more they use yeah, it that's weird yeah the more they use it the faster it travels through the somatosensory cortex to the visual cortex the more they use it so it becomes more like vision the more they use it which is pretty cool um, in any case within 15 minutes of using the device blind people can begin interpreting spatial information via the brain port I even saw a blind guy reading very large print and rock climbing like I said Shit. earlier. Um, and he actually, what he was reading, <laughs> it was even poorly written, but it was very sweet because it was his daughter had, had written daddy. Wow. So it was very sweet. Um, wow. while looking up Brainport, I also found a similar technology that uses a, uh, a band of electrodes on the forehead. I wonder if the two technologies could be used in concert for a wide, low resolution view on the forehead and a narrow, um, high resolution on the tongue the tongue being better suited as electrical conduit due to the moisture and salinity levels in the mouth. So I was like, you know, like, you guys should combine these two technologies. So to get a better, cool. better view. That's yeah. Hey, yeah. You know, like, like you get sick and like all your food tastes bland. <laughs> if you got like sick, would you like not be able to see as well? Would everything look really <laughs> amazing? 
It's like, sorry, that's man, true. I can't see. I'm that's, sick. That's pretty stupid. That would, no, that would have to be. That would have to be true. <laughs> but, but like, I think like your food tastes bland because you can't smell it. I don't know. Oh shit. <laughs> Maybe we, uh, all right. Man. Well, you get on. Well, that. no, that's yeah. not. It has to do with more more than just smell because I know when I'm sick, I also over salt food. So it has to be something directly to the taste buds. Oh, yeah. well the Damn. the salting the salt on food actually increases the electrical conductivity on the tongue. That's why it makes things taste, taste not really better. better, but you can taste more taste of the flavor. It all. Yeah, you can taste more of the flavor compounds. Uh-huh. And our next story: How to build a straw house that will last at least fourteen centuries. Hempcrete is a biocomposite made of the inner woody core of the non-psychoactive industrial hemp plant, mixed with a lime-based binder. The hemp core, or shiv, has a high silica content, which allows it to bind well with the lime. This property seems to be unique to hemp among all natural fibers. Hempcrete buildings ten stories high have been built in Europe. The material is mixed in mortar mixers for one to two minutes and stuffed by hand into a wall form or mold and left to dry for 24 hours. The material is lightweight and can be moved easily about the construction site in wheelbarrows and passed up bucket brigade fashion to workers filling the molds. Site cleanup is easy. Simply till the non-toxic hempcrete that spilled into the soil. The hempcrete is finished on the outside with a hard rendered coating about 20 millimeters thick to protect it with a final colored top coat finish added. The end result appears like a stucco finished building. The inside can be left natural or finished with lime plaster for a traditional look. Hempcrete was rediscovered in a bridge abutment in France built in the 6th century. Since its rediscovery, it has seen growing use in Europe. Given it has survived 14 centuries, people expect hempcrete buildings will last a long time indeed. Hemp is a beneficial crop requiring no fertilizer, a weed killer, pesticides, or fungicides. It grows so thickly that weeds simply cannot grow. Farmers grow it in rotation with other crops such as barley or rye. The crop following the hemp requires no weed killer because the hemp has driven out all the weeds. The hemp seed is harvested as a nutritious food supplement, rich in omega-3 oil. I would imagine these omega-3 oils aren't contaminated with mercury like some of the omega-3 fish oils are. It also has amino acids, protein, and fiber. Hemp is considered a superfood. The outer fibers are used for cloth, usually as a blend with 45% cotton. The woody inner core is chopped into uniform size and has been traditionally used as an animal bedding. In fact, thoroughbred horse owners demand it. For over 60 years, growing hemp in America has been illegal because it resembles its psychoactive cousin marijuana. It is grown legally in Europe, the UK, and Canada through a system of licensed growers producing seed certified low in THC or less than 0.05%. Farmers must buy their seeds from these seed growers and their fields are inspected periodically. In America, our hemp must be imported from the UK. A new plant to process the hemp core is being built in Canada, so there should be a North American supplier soon. A ton of hempcrete is estimated to absorb and sequester an additional 249 kilograms of CO2 over 100 years, as the wall gets harder and harder until it literally petrifies. The use of hempcrete in construction may reduce costs by shallower foundations, 30-40% to less lumber and labor in framing, lower transport costs of materials to site, lower finished costs, discounted insurance costs, reduced heating, ventilation, and air conditioning requirements, 
and no termite fumigation needed after build. However, due to dumbass nonsensical laws here in America, we can't grow non-psychoactive industrial hemp and therefore have to import it from other countries, usually the UK and soon Canada. This added shipping reduces the carbon negative feature of hempcrete and adds to production cost. It really is time for America to start growing industrial hemp again. Besides, when it was outlawed, it was just a big trick anyways. But that is another story. And our next story, a little hair of the cat that bit you. Researchers conduct all sorts of strange experiments in the name of science, from studying the slipperiness of a banana peel to looking at how dogs orientate their bodies when they poop. And now in the latest example of strange science, or weird science, Researchers at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland got some finches drunk to test one specific hypothesis. For the study, researchers gave grape juice to one group of zebra finches as the control and an alcoholic juice cocktail to the other group. The cocktail quaffing finches became somewhat inebriated with blood alcohol levels of 0.05% to 0.08% and so it was now time to see if birds slur their squawks. A comparison of the birds' songs showed that the barely-buzzed birds sang more quietly and their songs lacked their typical structure when inebriated. Squawk? Polly want a cracker? Squawk? To go with my cheese and wine? Surprisingly, the alcohol did not seem to affect the birds' coordination, so it's okay for birds to drink and fly. This study might sound a bit silly, But the researchers argue that it has important real-world implications. Since scientists still don't fully understand how alcohol affects our speech, the birds can serve as a good model for understanding humans. The research may also lead to new treatments for alcohol abuse as well as new technology for identifying people who are intoxicated. By Edward Hill. And now it's time for Darwin Weeps, stories about dumb people that will make Darwin weep for the future of our species. Sensitivity and manhood. Thanks to shows like Jackass, the entire internet is full of, well, jackasses doing really dumb things in order to prove their manhood by sometimes having horrible things done to their manhood. Like putting fire ants down the front of your Speedo. You're going to do this next, right? Okay, let's do this. Ow! They're biting my penis! Now they're biting my balls! They're biting my balls! Ow! They're biting my balls! The water's just pissing them off! My balls! My penis! My balls! My penis! Ow! 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 They're biting my balls! Why the hell did you talk me into this? You tricked me, didn't you? You assholes never had any intention of going next, did you? I sound like a little girl when I scream, don't I? 
I hate you guys so much right now. My balls. And now, they're not important, but they are funny, weird, entertaining, or at least good enough to make it into the news. It's not not noteworthy news. And our first story, The Frail and the Furious. A drunken Plainfield, Illinois man in a mobility scooter eluded the cops after exposing himself to a girl in a local park. County deputies were sent, and when they arrived, they were reportedly told by witnesses that the man had showed his penis to a girl. The deputies then spotted 57-year-old James Summers riding a red Discovery Mobility scooter a couple of blocks away on Howard Street. Summers ignored a deputy's commands to stop and took off on his scooter. The model he was operating can reach speeds of... <clears throat> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I mean... The model he was operating can reach speeds of 15 miles per hour. <clears throat> According to the Discovery Company and can travel as far as 43 miles on a single charge. A squad car sent to the scene tried to cut Summers off, but he simply maneuvered his scooter around the cops and kept on rolling away. In the end, Summers could not outrun the law and was stopped. He appeared intoxicated and failed a sobriety test and was placed under arrest. Police also found a 24-ounce can of beer in the scooter, which comes equipped with a cup holder. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Summers explained to the police that he does not use the scooter because he is disabled, but due to the fact that he lost his driver's license. <laughs> Man, you are one pathetic loser. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> no, none taken. <laughs> Summers was jailed on felony charges of aggravated driving under the influence due to his two previous drunken driving arrests in Nebraska. He was also charged with fleeing the police, driving on a suspended license, and transporting alcohol. According to the Sheriff's Department, the Plainfield Police have jurisdiction in the park and may be investigating Summers in connection with his alleged lewd conduct. Currently, no charges were on file relating to Summers allegedly exposing himself, and the Plainsfield police did not respond to a call for comment. Ah, so they didn't charge him for the reason they were called out to the park in the first place? That's some fine police work, officers. I'm putting you down for whatever the opposite of accommodation is. And our last story, Rescue 911. Oh wait, I read that wrong. Rescue from 911. Yeah, I'd like to report a car following me. Sure, sure I can describe the car. It's black and white, and it has these kind of red and blue, um, I guess they're floodlights on the roof, and a Star of David decal on the doors. I guess they're Jewish or something. But really, Berkeley, California. When the police are chasing you, and you think you're in danger, the best thing to do, at least in the mind of one California suspect, is to call 911. The man being pursued in a stolen car from Concord to Berkeley in the Bay Area actually said, Stop chasing me! I'm going to crash! Tell him to stop chasing me! Tell the helicopter to go away! The California Highway Patrol was chasing the suspect late Sunday night while he was driving down three separate highways, jeopardizing other drivers with the police helicopter on his tail. But even though he crashed, he did manage to escape the crash, and police have launched a manhunt for him, which will hopefully be successful by the time you hear this show. Merchant of Death by Raman Jwadi. And that's it for our show today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me. Hopefully we'll do it again together real soon.
In the meantime, I am Jeff. I am a seeker of Veritas. Check out my Tumblr page at sovcast.tumblr.com. That's S-O-V-C-A-S-T dot Tumblr dot com. Thank you.